Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donegan and Dror Gill. All right. Well, welcome back to the Video Insiders. I am here with Dror Gill. And how are you doing today, Dror? I'm doing great. How are you, Mark? Hey, I'm doing well. So uh, let's let's jump into today's show. Um, we are back with Bruce Devlin, and this is actually our second time interviewing Bruce. Uh, I'll give a quick introduction. Bruce is the Standards Vice President at SEMTI, uh, but more importantly, he is the founder of Mr. MXF which is a media consultancy. Well, hey, it's a good thing, Bruce, that we're talking about IMF today. So welcome back to the Video Insiders. Well, thank you very much, guys. And last time, Bruce, it was so much fun to have you on the show. And we learned a lot and we had a lot of fun with your uh, very unique uh, presentation style, which I'm sure our listeners will enjoy in this episode as well. And we went over a lot of topics, but it was it became clear that we actually needed to dedicate an entire episode to talk about uh, the IMF format. So let's start uh, by explaining to our listeners who haven't heard about IMF and uh, probably never touched those IMF files, which stay in the uh, servers uh, between the studios, but probably never reach the end users. So they probably don't um, are not very familiar with IMF format. So can you give us uh, an introduction to IMF and why SEMTI created this standard? Sure. Um, I'll also give you a little bit of a background as to where IMF lives in the value chain, because uh, I was familiar uh, with, with many bits of the value chain before we came to, to create IMF. And it seemed about sort of 10, 11 years ago that there was quite a lot of people that understood production. You know, you're making stuff, you're gathering photons and sound waves and turning them into some sort of program. A lot of people understood distribution in that you were given something to show and somehow you had to get it to millions of eyeballs, whether that was cable, satellite, broadcast, OTT, insert name of distribution format here. And to, for a lot of people, there was some kind of strange techno commercial magic that took place in the middle. And it was kind of different for movies and it was kind of different for episodics and it was kind of different for sport. And one of the things that we kind of realized back in the sort of late 90s, early 2000s, was that because of all these different ways of essentially distributing and doing the same thing, there was a lot of inefficiency. And wouldn't it be nice if we could at least package stuff up in a similar fashion to try and get rid of that randomness in the middle and spend all of that spare money on doing things that really mattered for the title you're trying to distribute, rather than just endlessly transcoding or reformatting or rewrapping. And really we did a little bit of a study and figured out that there were almost two separate communities trying to solve the same problem in a different way. It was essentially the movie community and the TV community. And whilst the problems looked the same from the outside, there were really quite different commercial and technical drivers to the solutions that were being developed. So in around, uh, somewhere around 2003 to 2007, a group of people got together and said, hey, why are they two different ways of doing this around the world? Why don't we have just the one way? Because essentially the problem is, is quite simple. You have a title and you want to get that to a whole bunch of different countries and a whole bunch of different territories inside those countries. Now, 
One of the problems with that, that the English and the Spanish and the Portuguese and the French and the Dutch tried to solve between about 1400 and 1750 uh, was to get everybody speaking the same language. But despite numerous attempts at global domination, none of those Europeans managed to achieve their end results. Um, and so people in their own countries will insist on speaking the language that they were born with. And so as a result, somewhere around the sort of 2010-2011 mark, uh, you had titles that were being distributed around the world in something approaching five or six thousand different formats. I'll just say that again. Five or six thousand different formats. It's like the, the Tower of Babel, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> For media. <laughs> just monstrous. And it wasn't the case that you went from this one source to 5,000 different versions of it in the one transcoder. There'd be about seven or eight steps in the distribution pipeline between your source and that destination. And each one of those transcode steps, you lost quality, you lost a bit of audio, you might have gone from 5.1 down to stereo, then eventually mono. So it was just a complete and total mess. And we felt that that inefficiency in the whole pipeline wasn't really helping anyone. I mean, if it was giving the consumers a great experience, then maybe there's no reason to touch it. But you know what? It was doing the opposite of that. It was taking something beautiful and turning it into something horrible with a whole bunch of processes that only existed because people didn't agree. So basically what we did is we tried to say, is there some way of manufacturing the version that you need for the right territory at the right time, more or less at the last moment, and then just doing the final phase of, I don't know, a transmission encoding for broadcast, a slightly different transmission encoding for satellite, a slightly different transcoding for cable, um, HLS or MPEG-DASH or nowadays CMAF for OTT. So we know that the last mile is always going to be different, but can we make that whole upstream bit a little bit more sane? So that was the problem that we were trying to solve. And it's interesting that you're saying you're, you're solving that problem for movies and television at the same time, because they have similar sets of problems. And, and SAMPTI, as some of our listeners might know, is the Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers. So you are dealing both with movies and with television content and trying to find uh, common grounds between these two worlds because, you know, m many times those uh, uh, movies uh, go to television and uh, you don't want to do uh, too many conversions in that process, right? Absolutely. And of course, movies are often made for a certain specific audience. I know a Hollywood movie is primarily aimed at the American audience uh, with some concessions to the international uh, distribution. But we have to remember that in different cultures and in different areas, there are certain compliance and conformance things that have to be done. You know, if you're taking a, a violent movie and you're taking it and trying to show a version of that in somewhere where violence is not allowed on the TV platform, then somebody has to go in and do those compliance edits and remove all of the, uh, the bits that wouldn't be appropriate for that particular TV territory. And of course, there might be different uh, rules in different territories for nudity and bad language and you know, political freedom of speech and you know, just all sorts of different things that different national territories really, really care about and have you know, prescribed into law in their own territory. And those have to be taken into account when you're going into that territory to uh, distribute your title. 
So the question then is, who is in control of that editing? Because if I've got a very high quality master, do I then have to transcode it to do the edit? You know, am I losing a quality step just for that particular um, compliance regime? And then if that edit's been done, can I kind of scavenge that back? Because at the end of the day, I'm the title owner of that title. Can I scavenge back that edit? So when I go into a similar regime, where it might be sort of a no nudity or no violence regime, can I reuse the work that I've already done? Because that edit decision list is now a starting point, so I don't have to do as much work the second time round. So at the end of the day, it's all about efficiency and work. And can we use technology to try and reduce the amount of work that you have to do to get your title to a different audience. Yeah, it's an amazing problem. And uh, I can only imagine, you know, we think of like language tracks, for example, um, you know, so therefore, wow, you know, there might be 30 or 40 audio tracks. Uh, but then one thing you, you didn't mention is, you know, for different distributions, there can be even reformatting in terms of frame size. You know, and maybe this is happening a, a little less now that, you know, almost every device can display 16 by 9 or, you know, there's there's kind of some standard formats. But, you know, I'm thinking of like um, uh, for hospitality channels, uh, you know, like on airplanes, um, seatback systems, you know, that might be 4.3 and, and the movie has to be cropped. And, you know, there's just it's incredible. And for airlines, you also need to edit the content. You always get this message. This movie has been edited for content. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, you know, again, could be, you know, as Bruce said around, you know, cutting out, you know, certain nudity or, 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 or watermarking or, you know, it's it, it's amazing. So it's very clear why IMF needs to exist. What does it look like in terms of, uh, uh, you know, I'll call it mandating? Um, is this becoming, uh, you know, like like required um, by content owners and, and studios that they're requiring, you know, compatibility um, uh, for IMF support by their partners? Or what, you know, what's the status in the ecosystem uh, for IMF? What a really good question. So there's a couple of uh, headline companies, you know, specifically uh, Netflix is probably top of the, the headline companies that really want to have IMF as the input mastering format and their main mastering format for their distribution. So if you're going to deliver a high dynamic range 4K title to Netflix, you know their preferred format is to have that as an IMF. Now, at, at that point, when I say an IMF, I have to zap myself with my own cattle prod because IMF is just a file format. Within IMF, it's not just one file. I should say a little bit about what it is and then go back again to your question about where it's used in the ecosystem, because uh, this will help explain it. So in order to get the versatility, in order to get the reuse of work that's already been done on a title, we went to what's known as componentized media. In other words, you put the video in a video file. You put the audio in an audio file. You put the subtitles in a subtitles file. You put the EDL, or composition playlist as we call it, in a CPL file. We have a packing list in a packing list file. So we've done a separation of types. Everything that's a different type goes in a different file. And for a particular instance, for a version of that, that title that you want to render out, there is a composition playlist that identifies 
that particular playlist for that particular instance of that particular version and it's everything in it is unique. Everything is tagged and audited, it has a unique number, all the way down to a particular three-second segment of subtitles on a particular track in that particular version that is a correction of another version of the thing. All of that has got identifiers into it, which means that just imagine that you're in the media industry and somebody makes a mistake. I know it's hard to imagine, but occasionally mistakes are made. <laughs> we never make mistakes. Absolutely. So just in the unlikely event that a mistake is made, there is the auditing inside every CPL, inside every reference to every bit of material that allows you to know what was tied up where. To the extent where if a particular version of a title for a particular territory undergoes three or four iterations, you can start to use electronic tools that are a bit sort of GitHub-like to go and compare the different revisions. And in fact, if anybody listening to this is a coder and they've used GitHub or GitLab or just Git, IMF is really the data model that allows you to build Git for media. It allows you to regress to any particular version, find out any particular instance that went wrong. It's got layers of security. It's got pretty much everything you need to track the entire life cycle in a completely vendor agnostic way and to look at how the life cycle of your title matured over the years as it sort of gained, I don't know, a French soundtrack and maybe some Albanian subtitles and then maybe some Hungarian subtitles and a Hungarian soundtrack as well. So that entire life cycle can now be tracked by all of these identifiers which live within the IMF format. And as you know, identifiers lead to automation. Automation leads to efficiency and that allows you to reduce your cost per title to get that title out amongst a broad swath of different viewers who might want to watch it. So do most of the digital asset managers, the dams, um, support IMF now, or is it still? Yeah, many of them can ingest and manage IMF. Some of them have native tools for supporting IMF, but pretty much all the big, all the big name ones can bring in IMF composition in and at least get the IMF composition back out again with all of its particular assets. And as I said, some of them are a bit more IMF aware and they can do things at the IMF level, like, you know, show a preview or, a, um, or, or manage the individual essence and show you its genealogy, for example. When you talk about uh, essence, can, can you uh, explain? I mean, I, my understanding is that the essence are the actual uh, media tracks, like audio, video, subtitles. Yes, it's exactly that. So essence is basically anything that you're going to um, hook onto a timeline and, and when you hit the play button, you expect it to come out of a, a screen or some speakers. Um, and one of the things that we've recently put in there is a thing called the immersive audio bitstream or IAB. And this means that things like objective sound, whether it's MPEG-H or Dolby Atmos or DTSX, I mean, those can now be put into um, IMF and be managed uh, in the mastering process in much the same way as a traditional uh, sound bed might be managed. Yeah, that's, that's uh, very useful to have this uh, flexibility in, uh, in the location of the audio by having it as a separate track, which is, uh, is object-based. Yeah, and the, uh, the whole idea is that, again, we're trying to make best use of the title and all the decisions that are made to it during each phase of its life cycle. So that means if 
there was a particular, I don't know, particular replacement made of a particular scene for a particular reason, and you need to repeat that decision in some other territory, then you can make use of those decisions somewhere else. So say, for example, a particular video scene was uh, cut out for compliance reasons, but because of that, the knock-on effect was that a, a new bit of audio had to be rendered because, for example, the bit that was, uh, the example I often use is that you know, somebody steps out the bath, looks to the side when a strange noise happens, stage left or stage right. Um, if that was the scene that was edited out because you know there was nudity as somebody stepped out the bath, suddenly the audio stage left or stage right is no longer giving you that, um, that plot hint that was there when you saw the person step out the bath, so you might need to adjust the audio slightly because of the video edit you made. Now traditionally, without a format like IMF that's managing the title all the way through its life cycle, you might well have had to go and re-render a slightly different bit of audio four or five or six different times for the four or five or six different territories um, that, that needed that kind of edit. But with IMF, if you've got a good workflow, you can scavenge back the decisions that were made in one territory and reapply that to other territories. And so I've, I've worked my way very slowly back to the original question, which is, who's using it today? Well, outside Netflix, you'll find that uh, most of the Hollywood studios have some form of IMF workflow or some element of IMF somewhere in their life cycle. Some of them are looking at how that might leap out of their internal workflows uh, and jump into their partner workflows. So uh, the post houses and facilities that prepare material for international distribution. Or many of them can already manage, process, create, and, and distribute uh, IMF compositions. The, you know, even if every single Hollywood studio migrated to IMF, that volume compared to the volume of the larger TV industry starting to use IMF on a da daily basis is really just going to be a drop on the ocean. And what really excites me today is the likes of the work that um, came out of, for example, the UK's Digital Production Partnership, or the DPP, where they looked at what would be needed for the TV community in the UK, for example, to migrate to an IMF interchange format for all of the versioning work that the UK uses, not just within the UK, but many of the international hubs for European TV distribution are located in the UK. So if the whole of the UK TV and post community suddenly starts to use IMF for these sorts of workflows, the volumes that flow through that territory will be absolutely immense. And we're just at the leading cusp of that starting to happen now. And it's very, very exciting. We're starting to see people you know, get rid of many, many steps of what are quite long involved workflows. Because if they start with IMF, suddenly, instead of having to re-render a piece of content four or five times, they're managing to render it once for each deliverable and moving metadata for the other bits of the workflow. So we're starting to see people really understand that it's not just reducing storage volumes that's important here, it's the reusing, reusing of the difficult decisions made by that grey blob of goop some of us have between our ears. Not me, of course, because I've got a cold, but other people with proper brains. <laughs> now, reusing those decisions is really important. Now, you know, uh, up until IMF, obviously, um, uh, all of the content creators, content owners, you know, studios, TV production houses, et cetera, et cetera, all were producing these files. So was everybody 
kind of did they all have their own you know discrete proprietary you know kind of formats and it was sort of like you know you just knew how Disney would send you the files and Fox would send it a different way and so on and so forth or was there another format that largely everybody was using I suppose in a way, yes, there was another format, but it wasn't the same format as you traveled around the world. So for example, in many TV communities, uh, the, the mezzanine format in community A might well have been ProRes, for example, because the equipment to make ProRes is relatively cheap. It's a pretty good quality codec. It will do eight, nine, 10 generations before you start to see some of the grimbly bits around the edge starting to appear. And so you had sort of Community A that would uh, drink from the ProRes Kool-Aid. And then you might have, I don't know, just pick a random community. Let's call it Community J. Um, they subscribe to the JPEG altar. And, and that community believed that JPEG was really the way to go because it would do eight, nine, ten generations and it produced artifacts that were, well, different to the ProRes artifacts. And the slightly weird thing was that if you did two generations of JPEG followed by a couple of generations of MPEG, then the JPEG codec acted almost like a perceptual noise reducer to some of the things that the H.264 would have done. So you've got some of these accidental benefits that people will latterly claimed was all by design. <laughs> of course. Yeah, <laughs> of course they did, yeah. We, we meant it to do that. <laughs> of course we designed it that way, yes. Um, and then you had, you know, Community X that would subscribe to XAVC and Community U that would subscribe to AVC Ultra and there was a few others around. Um, but it, it largely centered around the type of organization that was originating the material. So if you were like a movie-centric origination house, then you were often in Community JPEG 2000. If you were Tier 1 TV organization, you were often in Community ProRes. If you were a sports organization or a news organization, then you're often in Community XAVC or AVC Ultra. And then there are a few other ones around there, the Community DNX as well for the, um, the avid people. So there's all of these high quality mezzanines that are probably somewhere between four and 13 years old. Not many are older than 13 because that was like the, the tape horizon. But there's kind of this midterm archive of stuff out there that's kind of not quite IMF ready, but nobody really wants to process it with the old 10 or 12 step transcode many times to get to the end result either. So this is why the world is very, very interesting, particularly um, as we're recording this in 2020. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you were just um, giving a very nice retrospective of, you know, the various video uh, codecs that are used in the ecosystem. So what codecs are supported by IMF today officially? And is there such a thing as unofficial support or is it either officially supported or not supported? So again, I'll, I'll do this kind of historically. So the first codec, of course, was JPEG 2000, because a lot of the core work of IMF really came out of the, um, the cinema community um, and built on a lot of the digital cinema, uh, the DCP work that was, was created. So IMF is like a less constrained digital cinema package for those who are familiar with DCP. So JPEG 2000 was the, the first of the codecs. And a large number of people within the IMF community said, well, why don't we just stop there and use JPEG 2000 for everything? And then a bunch of TV folks said, well, you know what? We've got this big archives of ProRes stuff. We've got 
250,000 hours worth of, of ProRes. And you know what? If we had to transcode all of that into JPEG 2000 just so that we could have a better edit decision list, I'm not completely convinced that economically that makes any sense to anyone at all. Um, so we kind of, the, the sort of user community cranked the handle on that one and said, well, okay, maybe we'll have two codecs. Maybe, maybe we'll have the ProRes codec as well. And so we worked with the fine guys at Apple um, to get the ProRes codec into the IMF ecosystem. And that's been, that's been pretty successful. Um, and so this means that people who've already got very high quality ProRes archives can now take advantage of the IMF ecosystem. I mean, they can, they can literally go and get their the latest Cupertino fruit grower product um, that is made of hardware. That's probably just as specific as saying Apple, isn't it? Oh, well, so they can go and get their, <laughs> go and get their Apple tool, run up Final Cut Pro, and then, you know, use that to go and make a few MXF files and do a bit of IMF with it, because, you know, it's all working out the box. So that's opened up the doors to people taking their existing um, ProRes assets and then turning them into componentized assets and taking advantage of this uh, functionality that IMF gives for a mastering to many different platforms, many different territories uh, workflow that we, we've kind of optimized the thing for. So that was kind of two codecs. Interestingly, um, there was a bit of work done to have a look at, is there a requirement for an H.264 variant? And there was a kind of a hype curve that said, yeah, it's going to be great, it's going to be great, it's going to be great. And then when everybody looked at the H.264 assets they had, they kind of figured out that there was probably an upstream ProRes that was the one that they'd use in preference for a lot of their title. And so whilst that became popular amongst the hype brigade for a little while, it's kind of gone back to sleep again uh, because the people who are able to take advantage of IMF workflows today, they're kind of, they're more the sort of the ProRes JPEG 2000 or even uncompressed or we shot it raw and stored everything because we didn't know what to store brigade uh, rather than those that have a, a large number of high quality H.264 assets uh, in their archives. So I don't know how that one's going to play out. We might see that coming back. We might not. So I can see a scenario, um, Bruce, where the H.264 asset, correct me if I'm wrong, is one that likely had been edited for, you know, one of these maybe regional distributions. But what you're saying is the content owner said, hang on, you know, we have a ProRes. So why would we deal with this H.264 that's already been transcoded when we can go back to a, a higher original asset? Is is that kind of the case? That's kind of the case, yeah. And remember, you know, IMF, although IMF itself isn't particularly new, the thought of going to componentized workflows is often a bit of a brain bend for many people. Because although we've moved to files, and, you know, you guys more than anybody understand just how painful some of those migrations were, there's still a little bit of, it's got to feel a bit like tape. It's got, we've got to have everything together. What, what if a bit of audio falls off? And the analogy that I use for people when I'm trying to say it's not as scary as you think is to think of your email. Once upon a time, we all did emails locally with a great big thick Outlook client. But nowadays, really, 
know, even if you're running Outlook on your, your laptop or you're running, you know, some people still run Thunderbird, actually, do you really know where your email is? If somebody's attached a 30 gigabyte file to it, do you really think you downloaded that onto your iPad? Do you really think it's on your iPad when you press play? You don't really know where the components are. It is somewhere over the rainbow, which means in the cloud. Absolutely. And so IMF, one of the real reasons I think it's going to radically change the way that we do business in the value chain of professional and amateur media and, you know, even the indies as well, um, is because it's really quite simple to do, especially if you've got a cloud-based workflow and you're not scared about stuff being unraveled in the cloud. The barrier to entry, if you're of that mindset, is quite low. Where the barriers come are for those who've got a lot of existing infrastructure that's already interleaved audio and video, and there's no real easy way to unpick some of those bits except to start very far upstream and then to work through your workflows. And actually, all credit to many of the people who've already gone to IMF is that they've found ways to find some quick wins. And from that, they then spread from those quick wins into the more rich and you know, commercially interesting areas to try and get these componentized workflows to really give them the flexibility they need to respond quickly in today's bizarre economic conditions that we trade in. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we're largely involved in, in distribution of content that is one too many, uh, you have an asset and it's being streamed out to a hundred million households, you know, that, that kind of thing. And in that world, um, Codex, certainly H264, obviously HEVC, there's discussion around AV1 and of course the new VVC, EVC, etc. So I, I guess for IMF, since IMF is a mastering format, really these distribution codecs like AV1 or HEVC or VVC, et cetera, are not a factor or are they, or will they be someday? So this is where I, I take my standards and engineering hat off and I put my slightly futurologist economic imperative hat on. Go for it. So imagine that there's a cost involved in converting your high quality origin master into something that somebody downstream is going to actually look at. And imagine that you've got you know, quite an, a nice little business that's able to do encode on demand. Because you know what, if you're sitting on top of something of the size of you know, YouTube's number of titles, you don't want to encode everything into every format just in case. You want to try and do the minimum amount of work possible, and you want to try and reuse that amount of work wherever possible. So imagine that you've got two different quality settings, or more importantly, you've got somebody who wants to do the summary version of a particular title, and somebody's gone to the trouble of editing that summary version. Or you want to watch the one with no nudity because you want to watch it with the kids rather than watch it later on with you know the more adult members of the house. So there's all these areas where if you think about IMF as a mastering format to personalize the content at a fairly lightweight level, and as personalization becomes more and more important to platforms, I can see that platforms that have this personalization trait might actually find ways to create different timelines through the media. And what's the best way to reduce your costs? Well, if everybody uses the same timeline, then you can start to distribute it to different platforms because they can all read that same timeline. And this is where I think some of the more funky, you know, out of the box uses of IMF 
might start to not just gain traction, but gain something that's really quite useful. So I don't know if you have seen or watched or have played with TikTok. Um, I personally am at least five times too old uh, to be a TikTok user. I bet there's at least one clever engineer somewhere in the TikTok server farm who figured out that actually if you don't store two million different copies of the identical soundtrack for those two million different videos, you can get a bit of process improvement. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and really, that's all IMF is. It's how do we boil down so we don't have to do any more duplication than we need? Because we all use CDNs for what we do, so you have to do some duplication to get a better user experience. But you know what? If we've got a standardized way of auditing what we've duplicated, then that will help the world. And if the timeline version of that deduplication happens to use a bit of funky XML that Synthesis published called IMF, you know what? The more people that use it, the more the benefits get spread to more and more different applications and more and more people. It's, it's not magic. It's just good engineering put out there to get people to use it. And, you know, and this is a, a fabulous point because you mentioned like CDNs. So why can't you have essentially a public, you know, Netflix open connect type system, you know, just like Netflix will put their server, you know, in, in data centers and at the edge, right? So their content can be closer. Why can't you just begin to do the same thing as you talked about so that now you've got the content pushed out closer to where the users are? Uh, why do you need to have all of these services retranscoding and restoring, and, and, and it's the same file. So all of these dedupes, I mean, there's a certain amount of inertia in the way that we do things, which kind of stops some of that. And some of the benefits of IMF don't economically trump that change of inertia just at the moment. But I don't know, anybody who's looked at any trend graphs in the media industry, we just all know that unless the birth rate of the planet suddenly spikes upwards and we're getting millions more people being born to watch all the stuff that we're making, actually the number of eyeball contact seconds per title is only going to go in one direction, which means we have to be much more efficient in the way that we deliver that stuff. And IMF is just one tool in that supply chain efficiency. I mean, it's not magic, as I keep saying. Um, you don't have to use it. But if you do use it, it does give a certain amount of flexibility in the way that you define your timelines, and it gives you a nice little auditable way of figuring out what there is around the world. So let, let me give you one little example. I was asked uh, by one of my clients, you know, why isn't there an API for IMF? And I said, well, because it's just an XML file format that describes how stuff is linked together. And they said, no, no, you, you missed my point, Bruce. What we'd like to do is to have IMF tools figure out where the stuff is. You know, is there a registration service? So I thought, oh, that sounds like a good idea. So I, I got a, a bunch of companies together to say, what would an, a registration service look like? So we built a very, very simple API, a tiny little microservice that basically says, if you're an edge thing and you've made an IMF composition, you should be able to talk to a MAM and say, hey, I made this thing and the video files over there with this ID and the audio files over there with this ID and you put it into the central registration server. So based on that simple API and the ability to query that API, 
We've now figured out that actually this solves one of the difficult problems of imagine that you're a facilities house having to make the, I don't know, the Bavarian German subtitled version of a title and you know that somewhere you've already made a different version, a different German version of that title, but you can't quite remember where all the stuff was. How do you get the facilities inventory list to check itself against the MAM at the content owner without inventing a new protocol? And so actually we figured out with the IMF tools that already exist and this very simple registration API, there is a very simple dialogue where the content owner says, if you were going to do it from scratch, this is what you need. And then at the facilities house, the local tool can look up in its local MAM using this API. Oh, I've already got 10 of these 11 assets. And so it can then reply back to the content owner saying, yeah, as you were, just send me the stuff I don't have. And so without them having to exchange any kind of state, you can actually establish state because of IMF's ability to track the IDs of stuff right down to the level that everything ends up being signed uh, with a SHA signature so that even things that don't have an internal ID like, I don't know, poster art, a poster art JPEG, even that can be investigated using this API because there's a signature involved with it. And we think that's really neat because IMF allows you to do that even though you know these kind of state dialogues weren't designed into the format, but just by adding a simple API on top of that, suddenly it all just sort of kind of works. And so we developed this thing and we put it out in the public domain. It's available in open source for anybody who wants to look. So with this API, you're actually, uh, you have another level of efficiency uh, in the whole process because you can, you know, look up the assets or the parts of the assets that, that you need and, and only retrieve them instead of retrieving the full IMF file. Absolutely. And it's all about doing the minimum amount of work for the maximum amount of value to get to your title to the maximum number of eyeballs. You know, before we talked about the, uh, the essence, which are the actual media files, and you mentioned uh, uh, the composition playlist, which, as I understand, is kind of an edit list that tells you which parts to take from each of these essence uh, tracks or streams and how to build your final title. Is, is that correct? That's absolutely correct, yes. So the CPL is like a, a super edit decision list which audits which bit of which video goes in, into which bit of the timeline and which audio sample goes into which bit of the timeline. And th this is one of the things that you can do with audio and video in IMF because they're kept separately and stored separate, separately. You can essentially edit the audio down to individual samples and you can edit the video down to individual frames and you can decide to edit the subtitles and whatever's appropriate. Currently today we do that in, in frame rates and if you introduce some other funky metadata in some weird future where you've got, I don't know, the, the, the tracking data of a virtual light from a virtual set that was used to render a particular scene, well if that gets stored in IMF you can use whatever timeline you fancy for that and you know you might use those kinds of metadatas for doing stuff like rendering country-specific poster art from that virtual set. I mean, who knows? Um, IMF is only limited by what the industry wants to do with it. And that's where Simpty does the standards. And it's where a group called the IMF Users Group, imfug.com, uh, where we get together four times a year and we mix the users, the content owners, the facilities houses, the equipment vendors, and we all sit down and we have a really good, long, deep 
navel-gazing session to figure out, well, what do we need next in IMF? What are the problems we're trying to solve in IMF that a small amount of work could deliver a significant amount of benefit? And that's pretty much how we add new things into the mix. I understand there's another level um, after the CPL, which is called Output Profile List. Can you explain uh, what those are? I absolutely can. So an Output Profile List is like a virtual transcoder. Um, and the easiest way uh, for those who aren't transcoder geeks like myself to understand it is, imagine the CPL is like a recipe for a cake. You can bake that recipe in a number of different ways. You can bake it quickly in a hot oven or more slowly in a cold oven. You can put it in a square tin, a round tin. You can finish it off in different ways. And really the OPL is kind of like the finishing stage. For example, one of the work items that's currently going on within the SMPTE is to look at how do we get from a predetermined CPL to a standardized delivery format like the um, the AS11 format based on H.264, which is a, a playout format uh, widely used in the UK and in um, other territories. So how do you get from IMF into that format? And there's a number of things that are needed. To an earlier example that you said, you know, you might want four by three. Well, yes, you might want to take your 16 by nine or your 2.35 to one source and convert that into a 4x3 for a particular version. You might want to take a 5.1 sound mix and mix that down to stereo. Or you might want to take a stereo sound mix and mix that down to mono for a particular distribution channel. So all of these things that you need to do to get to that channel, those could well be in an OPL. And if you like, it's an abstract OPL. So we know what a virtual renderer would do, but it's not meant to replace you know, all the low-level settings that codec experts like yourselves put onto their own specific codecs to get the best bang for the buck for every bit of bitrate. OPL doesn't replace that, but it does do kind of like the heavy lifting to give you a, a more automated input so that if you're getting the 4x3 input from a 2.35 to 1 master, that bit is kind of determined by the people best placed to make those decisions. Is it possible for the OPL to be expanded? You know, if somebody wanted to get to that additional level of granularity? I am sure it could be done. But as I often say about standards, the process is the easy bit and the process is not the fast bit. Sorry, the process is the fast bit. The bit that's really slow is trying to get a room full of smart people with different vested interests to agree on something. And so if you had five or six different specialists who've got their own particular H.265 encoders with a slightly different control surface, because there's some really smart stuff inside these encoders that, you know, I can, I can only bow down and supplicate in front of the, the designers of these things. You don't want to give all of that secret source away upstream. You still want to have a bit of an edge. And so when you've got a room full of people all trying to agree on that level of stuff, it, it tends to kill the standards process. So standards, you tend to stop just in front of that, the ability for providers to innovate. Because if a standard stops people from innovating, well, that's no good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that's true. So Bruce, are there any uniquenesses with IMF that you think video encoding engineers are really you know, anyone involved in building, you know, operating video production workflows should know. Yeah, it, it's really down to the componentized mindset 
Say, for example, you had the misfortune to live in a country where you don't have integer frame rates. And I'm really sorry if you live in one of these fractional frame rate countries. I mean, it's it must be hell. You might have a whole bunch of edit decision lists in your archive. And by archive, I mean anything that's more than a day old, which are all based on time code or frame based decisions. But actually, as a video engineer, you don't care because there's an absolutely unique way to get into something like time code and out of something like time code without having any uncertainty whatsoever. However, once you start to synchronize audio, where you might have every five frames, a repeating sequence with slightly different number integer number of audio samples per video sample, uh, things might start to get different, particularly when you're starting to mix that world of, hey, we did everything with time code into a world where actually now we can edit everything sample accurate. And one of the things about IMF is that we insist that everything has the same duration on every track at integer level. So you can't actually have an audio track that's a fifth of a sample too short to be the same duration as the video. You have to make certain that your compositions are correctly made to have everything have integer durations because that way we can QC better because we have to auto QC these things because they're beyond most mortals' brains to be able to do all the sums especially beyond my brain. Um, so one of the things to really watch out for is the accidental fractional frame rate bias that has crept into a number of devices and products and it's quite honestly mindsets of some of the people who've lived fractional frame rate all their life in that being an audio sample out, well, that's been okay for 40 years. So why shouldn't I be an audio sample out going into the IMF era? And the answer is, as we take more and more people out of the chain, well, we don't really take them out of the chain, we get them doing other things because we, <laughs> the headcounts are not going down, they're keeping quite similar, we're just doing more stuff. We have to employ more automation and automation systems are really terrible at making fuzzy logic value judgments, but they're really good at checking two inches, integers are the same. So that is the biggest pitfall that I've seen so far to the extent where I was giving a training course for SIMPTI about how IMF works and I was doing the final rundown where I was explaining this pitfall of the uh, fractional audio samples in the fractional frame rate. And the person, there was about 10 people on the call, two of them ran away and they said, hold on. And they went away, you could hear frantic timing in the background. They came back again and said, thank you. We finally got it through the Netflix QC. And that was what was stopping them. They hadn't figured out <laughs> that the numbers had to be wow. precise. They didn't have to be almost, they had to be precise. Wow, wow. And so I personally see that IMF is an advantage here, that we've now got away from some of the inaccuracies that we've lived with for the last, well, since 1953, when fractional frame rates came to be. We're now getting back to a point where we've got integer relationships between all of our tracks again, and we can actually do hard math to make certain everything lines up. So as a sort of bit of a propeller head nerd, that makes me very happy. Um, and all the people who want to send hate mail, I'm sure you guys will redirect it to me should it turn up that way. <laughs> they know how to find you. <laughs> they know how to track me down. Mr. Yeah. MXF. <laughs> Mr. MXF, yes. I, I'm not hard to find for hate mail, trust me. <laughs> <laughs> so Bruce, this has been really uh, another amazing talk and, and discussion, very enlightening and a lot of useful uh, tips and information about this format, which uh, really sounds like it's uh, revolutionizing uh, the media industry. 
So for a summary, let's take a look at the, the future. Where is IMF going from here? What are you working on now at SAMPTI and what do you plan for the future? So the future looks very rosy, actually. We tend to only put features into IMF that are actually needed by the industry. So we don't put speculative stuff in. We try to make certain that there's real genuine requirements. So we're looking at things like other video codecs to try and mop up uh, some of the archives that are currently out there. Um, I can't mention them at the moment because they haven't made it out of the um, uh, out of the SIMPTI process. We're looking at how do we support the various high dynamic range requirements because, as you know, there's not one high dynamic range uh, encoding mechanism in the world. There's a few, so we're, we're putting that uh, inside the IMF world. Because some of the high dynamic range uh, formats require timeline metadata. We're looking at how timeline metadata goes into IMF, how it's used, how it's managed, how it's handled. We're looking at the immersive audio bitstream and how object and immersive sound gets handled within IMF. That in itself has kicked up some issues about, well, if we're going to make workflows that are metadata driven, let's make certain we've got some good metadata. So we ask ourselves, where's the, the controlled vocabulary for audio kind? Does everybody use the word stem? Does everybody use the word test? Does everybody use the word main program? Wouldn't it be nice if there was at least one controlled vocabulary where we meant the same thing by the same words? So we're busy doing all of these things that feel a bit small and trivial. But you know, what's trivial today becomes the biggest economic problem two or three years down the road. And so what we're hoping that we're doing is looking at these real issues that real people have and by putting them into SIMPTI and writing it down, and for all of the things like metadata registers, we put those for free on the SIMPTI website, we encourage as many people as possible to go to the SIMPTI registers and just you know, copy what's there, use the data that's there, don't invent new stuff, because the more people that reuse the same data, the better the automation and the more likely it is that when two devices that have never met each other before exchange an IMF or exchange an MXF file or exchange any kind of media, if they've got common metadata against a common dictionary, the chances of them working are significantly improved. And really, that's all I'm trying to do. That's awesome. What a great way to end. Well, thank you again, Bruce. I really appreciate your time and your, your wisdom, your insight. It's amazing. My pleasure. This is fun. It was, as usual, incredibly articulate and, uh, and very fun as well. So thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the Video Insiders Podcast. If you'd like to appear on the show, just send an email to thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's B-E-A-M-R.com with a brief description on what you're working on and why you think it's interesting for our audience. This podcast is sponsored by Beamer Imaging. The views expressed by guests are their own, and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent.